Welcome to Know That Really Happened, a podcast for unbelievable history. I'm your host, Joey Estava-Gersi, a partially sentient piece of toast with internet access. I'm joined today by my friend, actor, writer, and filmmaker, Emily Scott. Hello. How you doing, Emily? I'm good. Well, I'm very tired, but I am also good. Can I ask you a very personal question? What is your favorite color? I think it's green now. I say that with surprise because it's never been green before, but if I really just like sit with myself and think about it, I think it's green. (laughs) Thank you. You know what? Thank you for bringing us all along on that little journey of discovery. (laughs) Earlier in the introduction to this episode, I did tell a bit of a lie. I said that I was a partially sentient piece of toast, when the truth is that I am actually a human. I know. Shocking, but true. Uh, who is fascinated and equal parts appalled by human behavior. So I've managed to convince my beautiful friend Emily here to sit and listen while I tell some absurd stories from history so that I don't have to carry this existential fear that life is erratic and meaningless all alone. Mood. Yeah, that's uh, that's fair. I used to work as a preschool teacher, so I'm very familiar with that. This is so gross. Like, here, look at it. Today's episode is called Rich, Bored, and Weird because throughout history, rich people generally are pretty odd. Turns out that with unlimited income and a lot of spare time, people get down to weird shit, particularly in the 1800s, which seems to have had a plethora, I would say, of eccentric rich people. These huge, lavish Victorian estates were sometimes inherited by children. And these little boys that were inheriting entire estates would invariably lose everything at some point. Then these little boys would grow up into men and either get everything with a heartbeat pregnant or literally build a mansion underneath their mansion so that nobody could find them if someone came to visit. So we'll start today's episode with a story about George Gordon Byron, though you probably know him as Lord Byron. Lord Byron was a famous English poet. The only poem of his that I knew when I started this was She Walks in Beauty Like the Night of Cloudless Climes and Starry Skies. Have you heard that one? Yeah, I was going to say, I think the only thing I know Lord Byron from is Dead Poet Society. So yeah, I think that one. I have not seen that. (laughs) Oops. Um, But so yeah, he's famous for being a poet. He's also the father of Ada Lovelace, who was one of kind of like the founders of computer programming and a woman, which is dope. He lived from 1788 to 1824. He inherited his family's fortune and ancestral home when he was only 10. And he was the only heir. So he did what these men do. And when he died, he was basically penniless. He had lost everything. This sounds like Home Alone. (laughs) Like, imagine just putting Macaulay Culkin in a mansion and giving him millions of dollars and just letting him go. (laughs) Yeah, you seem like you can run an estate. You're probably fine. (laughs) Um, He actually, this was kind of cool, he died leading a campaign during the Greek War of Independence, and in Greece, they regard him as sort of a folk hero. Oh. Which I was like, wow, that's random as hell. He was also one of the ones who impregnated everything. On his Wikipedia article, the scandals and relationships section was vast, to say the (laughs) least. It was very, very long. There were a lot of pictures of women and men, but the story I'm going to tell isn't about any of that. I'm ready. So... Lord Byron was obsessed with his dog. He had a Newfoundland named, how do you pronounce that word? Bo- Boxman? Bo- Boson? 
Let me look real quick. I should have done this before uh, the podcast. Okay, it is bosun. Bosun. Okay. This word is spelled like boatswain, so don't judge us. I'm a child of immigrants. Anyway, he had a Newfoundland named Bosun. Do you know what a Newfoundland looks like? I didn't. No, I have to look it share up. my screen with you. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, so they're this big boys. Like, they're- this is like a dog-like fang from Harry Potter. Yeah, just like huge, big chongus. <laughs> he was obsessed with this dog to the point where, at some point, Bosun contracted rabies, and Byron personally like nursed him with no regard for his own safety or anything. <laughs> Spoiler alert, it was unsuccessful and the dog eventually dies. Um, Byron commissioned a funeral monument for him that was bigger than his own and requested to be buried next to him in his will. It was also the only construction project he had done on the estate his entire life. That tracks for a guy who, like, became the master of his estate at 10 years old. (laughs) Exactly. He was like, I don't know what to do. Put a monument to my dog? I don't know. So when Byron went to Trinity College, he wanted Bosun with him, but the rules prohibited bringing dogs to campus. Emily, what would you do in that situation? If you were Byron and you had a dog that you really loved and you wanted to bring to college and the college you wanted to go to wouldn't let you bring it, what would you do? I think if I were more risky, I'd sneak in the dog. But because I am risk averse, I would simply not (laughs) bring the dog. I don't know. He didn't have parents to leave it with, though. So I don't know. I would find a a trusted dog sitter to uh, take care of it. I mean, he has millions of dollars. Surely he can hire someone to stay with the dog while he's at college. Totally reasonable responses. He did what anyone else would have done. Very rational. Totally appropriate. Instead of bringing Botswin to college with him, he brought a bear. A whole bear. <laughs> a whole real live bear. My first question is... I guess it's twofold. First, how large was the bear? And second, how large are those dorms? Like, are they an average modern sized dorm? Or when you have millions of dollars and you're in olden times, do you have like a full common room to yourself? No, like everything was smaller back then too. So like... Maybe he really was just in like a fucking bedroom. The commitment to the bit is astounding, honestly. The commitment to the bit gets even better because he argued with the college that the rules didn't expressly forbid bears, they forbade pets. And the college fucking agreed with him. Wait, so he's arguing that the bear is not his pet, so is he just his roommate then? (laughs) (laughs) I think his argument was that the bear was a wild animal and not a pet. But he actually wrote in October 1807, he wrote to his friend Elizabeth Piggott, I have got a new friend, the finest in the world, a tame bear. When I brought him here, they asked me what to do with him. And my reply was, he should sit for a fellowship. (laughs) This bear could be a student. I love it. (laughs) It was just commitment to the bit. Obviously, it was ridiculous. Frankly, astounding that he lived long enough to, like, defend Greece, defend Greek independence. (laughs) And die there and not in his dorm room at college. Of all of like, because, you know, he's not the only crazy rich Victorian man to have had a bear in his home. And a lot of those people like lost chunks of their legs, lost chunks of their arms, lost like bits of their face because they had a bear in their house. So I don't know how he survived long enough to die in Greece. (laughs) But he would walk the bear on campus on a chain like a dog to scare people. 
I saw some accounts that he sometimes got the bear drunk and they would like party with it and stuff. Just, I feel like this whole story is just further proof that if you're a rich white boy, you can get away with just about anything. Yeah, honestly, this almost sounds like a kid at Stanford today. Just like... A hundred percent. Some finance bro would do this. I would like to know how, like, his impregnation of everyone was going during this time. I wonder if he had any people over for, uh, for activities. Oh my god! That's what hilarious. Like, what do you do? He them in with the promise of, like, seeing a cool bear, and then he's like, well, while we're here, like... Might as well, fuck. Yep. <laughs> do you put it past him to just be like, just go for a walk or something, come back in an no. hour to the bear? It sounds like he was, like, actually treating this bear kind of like a person. So, no, I wouldn't put it past him. Maybe if he was afraid that it wouldn't come back, he wouldn't do it. Just because then the bit would be over. And I feel like he he lives for the bit, so. He does. He lived for a lot of bits in his life. So that is the story of Lord Byron taking his bear to college with him. Fascinating. Are you ready for the rest of this roller coaster? Yes, yes. And I have a feeling that that was... That you started with that one because we're ramping up. So I'm very excited. For um, the next story, we are going to time travel to Hollywood in the 1930s. Ooh, so I'm going to show you a picture of this person. What um, do you notice about this person? These are two pictures of a woman speaking to a man. They're very dressed up and she... I mean, it looks like she's wearing a Halloween mask to me. Um, She looks like a Barbie head was, like, placed on a human body. That woman is actually a mannequin. Wait. Yeah. Okay, okay, now that I'm looking a little closer at her hands and her, like, joints, like, her joints do not look like joints. They look like, you know, gumby limbs that were bent. Yeah. She's a mannequin. And when I tell you, in the 30s, this mannequin was literally an A-list celebrity to a degree that blows my fucking mind. Her name was Cynthia. Okay. She was designed by an American sculptor named Lester Gaba, who was actually, he got famous doing soap sculptures because that was pretty popular during the Depression. She was designed by him for Saks Fifth Avenue. She was extremely lifelike and even had realistic human, quote unquote, imperfections like freckles. She had pigeon toes and different sized feet. And she was one of a collection of lifelike light plaster mannequins he designed for the store that came to be known as the Gaba Girls. But Cynthia was the star. Uh, Most store mannequins of the day were really heavy. They were made out of wax, like wax museum figures. They were unrealistic and they would like melt when it got hot. Huh. So this was like a big deal that this that this mannequin was only like 100 pounds. Cynthia was like the Kim Kardashian of her time, including the fact that she was famous for doing literally nothing and just continued to get more famous. She didn't even have to release a sex tape. Life magazine did a shoot with Cynthia, essentially going around town, being photographed, doing normal things. It was supposed to be like Cynthia's day about town, as if she was a real person. Like these pictures, you can look them up from the Life magazine shoot. These photos, she's riding a bus, she's going to the salon, she's smoking cigarettes. So that photo shoot catapulted her into fame. Cartier and Tiffany started sending her jewelry. People sent her mink fur coats and tons and tons of fan mail. She had her own box seat at the Met Opera House. What? Saks Fifth Avenue gave her a credit card. She had her own newspaper column and what one article described as a successful radio show. What the fuck? I want to... 
I gotta unpack that. How can a mannequin have a successful radio show? How can a mannequin have an unsuccessful radio show? <laughs> it makes zero sense. And nothing makes it make sense. I just, anyway, moving on. Gaba took Cynthia with him everywhere as his date. And when I say everywhere, I literally mean everywhere, like parties, various social events, red carpet events, restaurants, the theater. She had a box seat at the Met Opera House because he would literally dress her up and take her out to the opera. He really encouraged this anthropomorphizing of her. And when he went out with her, he would say that she couldn't talk because she had laryngitis. She was even in a movie one time, and she's listed as a cast member. Which is wild, because there were other mannequins in the same movie, but they all just got relegated to props, I guess. Reporters would write about her like she was a literal, living, breathing socialite, talking about where she had gone, what she had been wearing, who she'd been seen with. Eventually, her designer, Gaba, had to go off and fight in World War II, but before he left, he sent Cynthia to stay with his mother in Missouri, where he left strict instructions that she was to be pampered like a real star. So she was going to weekly beauty treatments and styling at the salon. It was, unfortunately, during this time that tragedy struck one day in 1942, when Cynthia slipped from the salon chair and shattered. Oh, my God. Wait, what was she made out of again? A plaster, I believe. Plaster? Okay. The press reported on this event like she had literally died. I couldn't find it, but like they wrote her an obituary. Like she was a person who died. First of all, this mannequin has a better life than I have. And second of all, like the irony of her dying by slipping out of a salon chair, if they had just kept her at home and not treated her like some weird like actual real person she would have been fine if they had just put her like in a closet while he was in germany right and what's crazy is that it wasn't up until this point it was like gaba doing the stuff to like make her anthropomorphic but now he's making other people do it yeah he was like mom i'm sending you this doll take her to the salon every week like, I bet that hairstylist got fired. <laughs> Probably. Honestly, she was so famous. <laughs> like, because they didn't secure her properly or something. Jeez. It's extra bizarre to, like, pull other people into your delusion. I don't even know if it was a delusion. I'm sure it was more of a PR stunt than a delusion, but you know what I mean. <laughs> it seems like it was mostly PR stunt, but maybe a little bit delusion. When Gaba came back from World War II, he spent the equivalent of $100,000 in today's dollars to put her back together and had her upgraded with a moving jaw and the ability to speak pre-recorded sentences in an attempt to get her back in the limelight. He wanted to try to put her in movies, but it never went anywhere. People just didn't care about her anymore. That's like a horror movie. It should be a horror movie, right? <gasps> okay, now I want to write a horror movie about Cynthia. Also something that just popped back into my head. When I first found out about Cynthia, I immediately thought about fucking Cynthia from the Rugrats. I was thinking that too. <laughs> was Cynthia based on Cynthia? And maybe. we never knew? Maybe. And maybe that's why her hair was always messed up and she was like always looking raggedy. That would be intelligent, but crazy. <laughs> yeah. So where is Cynthia now? Years later, Gaba himself confided in the New York Times um, reporter Gay Talese. Cynthia never made any sense. <laughs> yeah, I remember all that stuff I did. <laughs> Crazy, right? <laughs> I don't know if he was saying that as in Cynthia never made any sense, like, as a concept, or if he was trying to, like, 
do more of like the laryngitis thing where he was like, oh, Cynthia, literally when she spoke, never made any sense. In the same interview, he recalls riding in a car with Cynthia and suddenly beginning to feel like she was a real person. And he eventually couldn't take it anymore. And he said, so one day, while absolutely disgusted, I took Cynthia down to the studio of a mad scientist in Greenwich Village and left her in the attic. Okay, once again, I have questions. I have a million questions about (laughs) this particular statement. And I spent most of my time last night trying to figure out what the fuck he meant by mad scientist or like where in Greenwich Village is she still there? We have no idea. We have no idea who he was talking about. How would you even like begin to look for like, I need a mad scientist. I have needs that only a mad scientist can satisfy. Is there a section in the phone book? And it had to have been a mad scientist that he had a personal relationship, right? Because he couldn't just be like, hi, hello. Yes, I got your number from the Yellow Pages. Um, I was hoping you might have an attic that I could put this speaking mannequin in and leave it for forever. I wonder if like somebody reached out to her and he was like, hey, so, you know, I'm a mad scientist. I know you're trying to make this doll real. If you ever decide to get rid of it, here's my business card. Also, like, well, I have a couple of thoughts about it. First of all, it makes me think about like how this idea of doll or AI or some sort of non-human woman that you can control has persisted almost forever, it seems like, like in movies and stuff. It's never a male mannequin or it's never a male robot. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it also makes me think about how that is just what people do to like women in Hollywood and in the spotlight. No, that's the tea. You know, we Uh, all get left in an attic eventually something happens to you or you know you age you like and you go away for a while and when you come back nobody cares anymore and you're just washed up when some man gets tired of you you don't even have to age in hollywood if you just stop being popular yeah yeah she wasn't like the it girl anymore crazy that's very depressing (laughs) i don't know if we expected this to get this depressing (laughs) Now, for me, when it comes to Cynthia, I was so shocked and appalled by her existence that it never occurred to me that anything like this could still exist. But the reality, unfortunately for you, dear listener, is that there are mannequin and AI influencers. Do you know about Essential XO? No, not specifically. Okay, here's Essential XO. Oh, I don't like that at all. Neither do I. Yikes. So this influencer that I'm showing Emily right now is called Essential XO. Essential XO has over 20,000 followers on Instagram and was created by artist and performer Alexis Stone. Essential XO is actually an anagram of the name Alexis Stone. There's a great article about this project on papermag.com that says, Essential XO feels like a mirror of our collective obsession with influencers and celebrities, for better or worse. After all, someone who's no stranger to cancel culture... Stone also wanted to create a highly visible figure who doesn't react or experience emotion. He says, With this project, I was detaching the human element to it. So people can troll, people can try and cancel, they can insult, but she's not human. She's not going to react. You're not going to get a reaction from her. So I suppose I've created a beautiful, alien-like target board. What? Uncanny Valley. But, like, also her face is, like, wrong. Yeah, it's like somebody, like, put Anya Taylor-Joy through, like, an avatar filter. 
It's like the A Bug's Life version of, or the Ants version of I definitely recommend reading this article, or there's also a YouTube video that Alexis did about the project. It's super interesting because this mannequin is supposed to be kind of a reflection of him, but separate from him in a way that will live on past him. It gives me goosebumps. Too creepy for me. If you're into that, check her out on Instagram. Are you ready? We are going to time travel back to the 1800s. But this is not a rich playboy who inherited his estate at 10 years old. This was a man named William Buckland. He lived from 1784 to 1856. He was a geologist and a paleontologist, as well as the dean of Westminster, which meant that like his title was technically reverend. So he's technically reverend William Buckland. Okay. He wrote the first full account of a fossil dinosaur, and he pioneered the use of fossil feces, including coining the term coprolite and reconstructing ecosystems. He also discovered a cave where the oldest anatomically modern human was found in the United Kingdom. So wow. he has lots of great accomplishments for science and academia. Seems like the kind of guy who had a quiet, peaceful academic life, right? You know, this yeah, is I would expect this to be incredibly rational and no nonsense. And it seems like that's not going to be the case. <laughs> you know, you might be onto something there. I knew I had stumbled upon something special when his Wikipedia article had a section merely titled Known Eccentricities. Jackpot. <laughs> he was known for having kind of an unorthodox teaching and research style. He preferred to go on archaeological digs wearing an academic gown, like the thing you wear to graduate. So imagine if Indiana Jones was out there digging up fossils in an <laughs> academic gown at all times. He wow. was also apparently very animated in his lectures, and he would yell questions at his students. Here's a quote from one of his contemporaries. He paced like a Franciscan preacher up and down behind the long showcase. He had in his hand a huge hyena skull. He suddenly dashed down the steps, rushed skull in hand at the first undergraduate on the front bench and shouted, What rules the world? <laughs> what rules the world? The youth, terrified, answered not a word he rushed then on me pointing the hyena full in my face what rules the world i said haven't an idea <laughs> the stomach sir he cried rules the world the great ones eat the less the less the lesser still so food chain if you're at the top of the food chain you eat you know what's below you if you're less than you eat something smaller than you that kind of stuff Okay. If you were this guy, this well-known geologist, paleontologist, academic, highly intelligent and respected, what do you think your life goal would be? Well, it sounds like he accomplished a lot of things for uh, his field. Um, maybe like the Nobel Prize. Did he want to win the Nobel Prize? He did not want to win the Nobel Prize. <laughs> no. Reverend Billy Buckland's life goal was to taste every animal on Earth. Oh, God. Why taste everything? Why not? Why, what, what is important about tasting something? Because the stomach rules the world. The great <laughs> ones eat the less, the less, the lesser still. If he, if he eats every animal on Earth, then he's like the master of the world emperor of science or something. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> He was a member of the Society for Acclimatization of Animals. They were pretty common in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, acclimatization societies were 
volunteer organizations that encourage the introduction of non-native species in various places around the world in the hope that they would acclimatize and adapt to their new environments. This was when white people didn't know about invasive species and like some animals shouldn't be in some places, you know? Yeah. As it turns out, when you introduce something entirely new to an ecosystem, it disrupts the ecosystem? Shocking. So he was a member of the Society for Acclimatization of Animals, and they allowed him to import all sorts of animals into the UK so that he could study their suitability for eating. Weird. His okay. party guests report having been served mice on toast, which was apparently his favorite. Mice um, on toast? He'd also eaten panthers, porpoises, hedgehogs, ostrich, elephant trunk, crocodile, and even puppies. <gasps> no! He said that the worst tasting things he tried were the common mole and blue bottle flies. Ew. Okay. Okay. I don't know. I don't know what I would have guessed for like the worst tasting thing, but you know, flies seems appropriate. Reasonable, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and his son, Francis Buckland, followed in his footsteps and continued to eat every animal he could get his hands on long after his father's death. Many sources seem to be of the opinion that the Bucklands were more after the notoriety and fame with these exploits than they were actually interested in the science of it. Mm. Charles Darwin even said he called William Buckland a vulgar and almost coarse man driven by more notoriety than his love of science. Oof. So I guess that's one way to get famous. Just be so fucking bizarre that like people have to pay attention to you. Like, <laughs> What do you think the most outrageous thing this man ate was? Maybe this is the horror movie version, but in my head, it's like human, like people. <laughs> you know, you're not 100% wrong. <laughs> God, of course. The most outrageous thing William Buckland ate was a piece of Louis XIV's mummified heart. <gasps> so many parts of that sentence are horrible. <laughs> So for those of you who might be listening and don't know who Louis XIV was, he was a king of France. He was known as the Sun King. He was very, like, glamorous. He built Versailles. That was kind of his whole his whole thing was that everything he did was, like, beautiful and, and outlandish. He reigned 72 years. Seven, that's a long time. He probably yeah. also came to power when he was, like, six or yeah, some shit. Probably. He died of gangrene after undergoing a painful operation for an anal fistula. Oh! <gasps> The wound took more than two months to heal, and Louis died of gangrene at Versailles. Okay, so he was not beheaded during the French Revolution. I guess not. He must have missed that <laughs> because he had really heinous anal fistulas. Good for him, you know. Is that a better way to go? I don't, I don't know. know. Probably not. So starting in the 13th century in France, it was common practice to separate certain organs from the king's body to be put on display and then buried separately. But during the French Revolution, keeping the monarch's hearts on display was obviously not a priority for the revolutionaries because mm. they were getting rid of the monarchy. So it was actually sold to an artist who used most of the heart to create a specific shade of brown and then, like, painted with it. What? But what happened to the rest of it after that, no one really knows. Until... He just, like, bought Louis XIV's mummified heart on the black market, basically. So here's what had happened. William Buckland went on a visit to his friend, Lord Harcourt, the Archbishop of York in 1848. The Harcourt family had in its possession a walnut-sized piece of the mummified heart of King Louis XIV of France. It's somehow. not known how they got their hands on it, but somehow they did. 
During this formal dinner, attended by William Buckland and several other high-profile guests, the family put it on display. And then over port, they passed it around the table for the guests to look at. When it reached William Buckland, he reportedly said, I have eaten many strange things, but I have never eaten the heart of a king before. And then just popped the damn thing in his mouth. Just, mmm, <gasps> num, 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 num. What the fuck? I can't, like, can you imagine what happened after that moment? That was the last piece of that. <laughs> I can't, And I can't find any record of how the Harcourts reacted, but it doesn't oh. seem to have caused any, like, major issues because Buckland was still buried at Westminster Abbey among a bunch of other famous English people. So, like, the okay. Archbishop of York must have just been like, lol, what? He just does this. This is his thing. I wonder how, like, how many people have gotten away with shit simply because British people don't like to endure conflict. <laughs> like, hmm, well, that was quite interesting. Did it? Did he say what it tasted like? I'm curious about that. I feel like if it tasted like anything, it tasted like heart. But, like, it was mummified, you know? It had been, like, embalmed right. and shit. Right. Someone who does science, DM me and let me know if that's true. That's also crazy because, like, his whole thing was, I'm gonna eat every animal, and if I eat this, it's like I'm somehow better than or bigger than him on the food chain, and I have more. Now I'm the king. Now I'm the king. What if that was how it worked? <laughs> if somebody, like, went up to Charles, just, like, a random person. Megan. I'm the king now. <laughs> Meghan Markle ate King Dude, Charles. I would pay money to watch Meghan Markle tear out King Charles's heart <laughs> and become the new oh. king of England. <laughs> so that's the uh, story of William Buckland, who ate every animal on earth and King Louis XIV's heart. Yikes. I can't. What would possess you? Bad scientist and a bad dinner guest. That's what I, <laughs> that's my review of that man. <laughs> <laughs> Do not invite over for Shabbos. You feeling okay after those stories? You need anything? Water, a cigarette? I think I, I think I'm good. I'm good. I okay. am. I've effectively swallowed the vomit that came up in my throat. So love to hear it. <laughs> so I heard that you have a story to tell me. Yes, I do. I actually I did find a story that I think definitely fits in with our rich, bored, and weird theme. So I was recently rereading The Anthropocene Reviewed by John Green. All my information is coming from that book. I didn't do any further research on it. This is a story about a guy called Clarence Saunders. Are you familiar with the Piggly Wiggly? Yes. Clarence Saunders invented the Piggly Wiggly. <laughs> Why? Um, so back in the day, grocery stores were basically counters where you could go up and you would be like, these are the things that I need. And the person at the counter would go and get them for you and bring them up to you, wrap them for you, and you would buy them, sometimes on credit. Clarence Saunders was imagining like a more efficient, more capitalist way of doing the grocery store. And so he was the one who first imagined like aisles of food that people go get themselves. And so you wouldn't have to employ as many people. Oh, was Piggly Wiggly the first grocery store like that? I think so. Yeah. It was like the first self-service grocery store. That's awesome. But also, why the fuck did he pick Piggly Wiggly? Great question. Um, John Green writes in here about this. Quote, 
When asked where the name came from, Saunders once answered that it arrived, quote, from out of chaos and in direct contact with an individual's mind, which gives you this a sense of the kind of guy that he was. <laughs> I'm trying to when unpack also, that answer. Does that mean he like, is that just him saying, I made it up? Basically. Um, <laughs> it also says that he would sometimes answer uh, so that people would ask that very question. So he just picked something crazy, I guess. Just so people would ask him. Yeah. Also, so this man is reportedly, based on this book, not a good guy. Uh, as you can imagine, he was reportedly, like, abusive and obviously, like, horribly capitalist. But I think you could have guessed that. Yeah. Especially because, like, I really think this man missed his calling as a cult leader. This is yeah. the way that he would write about the Piggly Wiggly in newspaper advertisements and stuff like that. This is a quote from one of the ads. One day Memphis shall be proud of Piggly Wiggly, and it shall be said by all men that the Piggly Wigglies shall multiply and replenish the earth with more and cleaner things to eat. Oh, yikes. <laughs> and another, another quote is, the mighty pulse of the throbbing today makes new things out of old and new things where was nothing before. I stopped listening after the mighty pulse of throbbing today. I know. What does that mean? That I like, couldn't cool. comprehend past that. Uncomfortable, right? So John Green also, he goes into talking a little bit more about how this type of grocery store changed American diets, you know, because people were putting out more processed food because there weren't, they weren't hiring people to sell a lot of produce in the same way. So that was sort of shelf stable food became more popular. Oh, wow. um, also like food adver advertisement had to like came out of this because food companies had to advertise directly to the consumer instead of being bought in bulk by you know the grocers oh, so wow. so this had like crazy like wide-reaching implications ultimately saunders makes a killing off piggly wiggly but then piggly wiggly starts to fail because there are other people picking up on this format he's not able to spread it as widely as he would like wall street people start short selling the the stock of piggly wiggly which like is betting against it to fail, you know, and eventually Piggly Wiggly is bought out by someone else. After losing control of the company, he wrote, they have it all, everything I built, the greatest stores of their kind in the world, but they didn't get the man that was father to the idea. They have the body of Piggly Wiggly, but they didn't get the soul. This man thinks that his store is Jesus. There's a lot going on here. So if I, if I go to a Piggly Wiggly and I like peel a little bit of the brick off and eat it, is that the same as, like, the Eucharist? Based on the way this man is talking about it. No, really. It, it, <laughs> it gets crazier, too. So he's basically blown all of his money buying, like, a huge mansion and stuff. So he made a fortune with Piggly Wiggly. He lost the fortune. He decided to open up a new set of grocery stores. The current owners of Piggly Wiggly sue him because they think that if he uses his name which is attached to the Piggly Wiggly brand. It'll be, I don't know. They sue him about his name. And so his new line of grocery stores is literally called Clarence Saunders, sole owner of my name, grocery stores. No, shut up. <laughs> shut up. No, no, no. I cannot, I, no, I cannot drive past that on the street. That's not. I'm just going down to the Clarence Saunders, sole owner of my name. Um, 
I'm gonna pick up some coffee. Do you need anything from Clarence Saunders, the owner of my name? Oh my god! <laughs> it failed, right? It started to do well at first. Made him another fortune that he used to buy a professional football team, which he named the Clarence Saunders, sole owner of my name, Tigers. No. They were invited to join the NFL, but he declined because he didn't want to share revenue or send his team to away games. He didn't want to do away games? (laughs) He also said he was going to build a stadium in Memphis. This is where all this is taking place, Memphis. And he said, quote, the stadium will have skull and crossbones for my enemies who I have slain. I'm so embarrassed for this man. I'm like sweating. It's bad. So ultimately, the depression happened, basically. And Mm -hmm. the sole owners went under. Football team went under. Saunders uh, lost all of his money once again. And he ended up, his third attempt at like making it in this industry uh, was something called the key doozle. The key doozle. Yes. And to quote uh, John Green in this book, the key doozle was a totally automated store that looked like a massive bank of vending machines and involved purchasing food with almost no human to human interaction. Fucking this capitalist piece of shit. I know. But the machinery often broke down and people found the shopping experience slow and clunky. So the key doozle was never profitable. No shit. It says, as he aged, Saunders grew more vitriolic and unpredictable. He began to suffer from debilitating bouts of mental illness. He eventually entered a sanitarium. And uh, that is where he died. However, the silver lining to all of this, the house that Piggly Wiggly built, the mansion, then became Memphis's Science and History Museum called the Pink Palace Museum. And it appears to be pink, like, in the sense that the bricks are, like, kind of pink-ish. Uh but it has a cool green roof and it looks very cool. And then it also says that the estate that he built with his second fortune from the sole owners became the Lichterman Nature Center. So oh. it's kind of great, I think, that, you know, this horrible yeah. man sent us into a capitalist spiral. But also, like, the things that he built with that money became, like, a public service. I don't know. I think that's kind of cool. I was just thinking about it, like, when I was reading it. I want there to be, like, a Succession-style miniseries. I feel like now I have to, like, go away and, like, write the film version of all of the things that we just talked about. I'm still reeling about the Charles Saunders, sole owner of my own name, series of businesses. What if I called this podcast Joey Estava, the podcast that belongs to only Joey Estava? (laughs) I love that idea. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks for joining us on this romp through absurd human behavior. Join me and Emily here in two weeks for a special Halloween episode. I cannot wait to info dump about four people who were really nearly impossible to murder. Not completely impossible, just almost impossible. Don't forget to follow at NTRHpod on Instagram and Twitter for updates and dank history memes. And if you know of an event or person from history whose story sounds fake, hit me up at NTRHpod or NTRHpod at gmail.com. Sending you enough chutzpah to eat somebody's heart today. See you next time.